Turn with me in your Bible to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. We began a series a couple weeks ago about the doctrine of confession, and I want to continue there. Here in a few minutes, we're going to read a passage out of the church epistle. It's not, it's not doctrine. It's not scripture. I want to be clear on that. The epistle of Polycarp. It's a historical document. It's a historical letter. Um, it is an actual letter, but it's not canon, so we don't exalt it as scripture or an errant, but it is a letter. It's a historical letter. I'm going to read you a part of the testimony of the, the, the martyrdom of Polycarp, which I quote from time to time because it's one of the coolest testimonies, but uh, I was able to remember where I had it from. It's in this massive book here, so I've, we'll pull that out and read it. We've been teaching this passage on, or this, this subject on the doctrine of confession, and we began in the book of uh, Leviticus talking about the Mosaic law and how confession is established under the law of Moses even though it predates it. But the thing we have seen for the last two weeks, the most prominent important thing we confess is our sin. Now that may seem petty, but to always confess your sin when you do it, it helps you maintain the strength of humility. And it also helps you continue to recognize sin is still sin. If we don't maintain the doctrine of confessing sin, we'll begin to justify our sin. Well, do I need to confess it again? It's only the ninth time today I did it. I mean, this time, what's the point? If we ever stop confessing sin as the Bible commands and the New Testament requires, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we ever stop confessing it, we run the risk of slowly beginning to change our faith. Now we're watching that in the nation right now. We're watching churches, denominations begin to no longer affirm biblical righteousness and they're beginning to confess things aren't as bad as maybe we once believed. The wonderful thing for us as modernists living in the 21st century is that the Bible doesn't change. For all the arguments that look to diminish the scripture, they say, well, there's so many translations. Yes, and they all come from the same Greek manuscripts. So translations might change, whether NIV, NLT, NEV, CSB, KJV, NKJV, NASB, NASB 20, NASB 95, blah, 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 blah. They all come from the same manuscripts, and those manuscripts are all numbered. So don't listen to the morons that say, well, you can't trust the Bible. It's been translated so many times. No, you can trust the scriptures. Maybe don't trust the translators. They might have an agenda. They might be a little biased, but you can trust the manuscripts. And anybody can download an app for free where you can go look at the Greek words yourself and see, what does that word really mean? Oh, it still means sin. All right. Okay. Sin means sin. All right. All right. Okay. I feel satisfied. We have to maintain the confession of sin. Even if you're really good at that sin, even if you've confessed it seven times, 70 times today, you're still going to say, Lord, forgive me again. I don't deny it. It is sin. I liked it a little more that 491st time I did it, but it's still sin. Have mercy on me for sinning against you and my neighbor. We hold fast to confession of our sin because it's what allows forgiveness to come. If we don't confess our sin, he can't forgive us. Even though Christ died 2,000 years ago, he has forgiven us, but we can't apply the forgiveness without confessing. And this comes back to the doctrine of forgiveness, which we don't have time to go into this morning, but both the Greek and the English give us this understanding that if, if Gertie sins against me, I have to forgive, but I don't have to forgive. 
So you say that and people start getting all upset and they want to get unforgiving towards me because they think I'm teaching heresy. So before you act like the immoral, hypocritical fool, when Gertie sins against me, I must instantly forgive him. We understand it. But the Greek also has this, this permission, this application that just because I forgive him doesn't mean we ever restore fellowship. So he's forgiven, but there's no restoration available. That's why the Gospels could say, if your brother repent, forgive him. If he doesn't repent, you don't forgive him. But yet the Bible says forgive. This Again, we did a couple Wednesday nights on this a while back. When I first said it, people chewed me out on social media. He's teaching you shouldn't forgive. He's well, what are you doing right now, idiot? What are you doing on social media? You're acting unforgiving. So, hey, you should agree with my doctrine until you hear me explain the fullness of it. When we get into Matthew 18 and say, if my brother sins against me, I should go to him. So rather than light me up on social media like the individual you are, why not reach out to me? You're apparently streaming me, so you have access to me. How about grow a backbone and do the Bible rather than be a coward and like just slander with your fingers? If this is the loudest voice you have, you don't have a voice. Where is Thumpkin? Where is Thumpkin? Slandering, slandering. You're gonna go to hell. You're gonna go to hell. No, you can repent of slander like you can every other sin. So what we're getting back to is we confess sin, even though Christ died for us, so that 1 John 1, 9 is activated, that he might wash us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, there have been a few instances in my time as a pastor where people have been serving God, but never vocally repented of a sin 10, 15, 20 years ago. One individual in particular I'm thinking of, uh, I was meeting with them on a regular basis. They had had an abortion 15, 20 years prior. And we were trying to help them through this grieving process. And as, a, as foolish as it was, I, I thought to ask him, have you ever confessed this sin? Not to me. I'm not a priest. Have you ever acknowledged it to your God? And she, because only she's can get pregnant and only she's can have an abortion. Now, husbands or baby daddies can force the thing, but that them aside, that's another can of worms. She said, no, no, I've never, I've never even spoken of it. Never even said the words of it. And that's when I realized, all right, she's been serving God. She's been in our church, but she's not cleansed. This is the root to a lot of this issue here. She's under heaviness because she's never done the Bible. Now, the modern heresy says you don't have to confess anything anymore. And that teaching is very popular. It's in a lot of books. Because we're already forgiven, you don't have to apologize. You don't have to confess. That's heresy. So I said, all right, ma'am, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. We're going to confess your sin. I'm going to pray you repeat after me. She said, okay. I said, do you trust me? Yes, sir. I said, I want to warn you. I'm going to be very graphic. We're going to run through every word I can think of to describe this so the enemy can't ever come back and say, well, you didn't say it right. Yes, amen. So we're just going to run the gamut so you be prepared. I said, I love you. I don't condemn you. I'm not against you. I wouldn't be meeting with you every two weeks like this for a year if I was against you. She said, okay. So we prayed. And I bowed my head. She bowed her head. We're in my office. It's when it was over there. We had the little the lights in there. Windows open for, for accountability's sake. Ginger's office is right down the hall there. So we pray. So I led her in a prayer and I said, Father, Father, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, I confess my sin of abortion. I confess I murdered my child. I confessed I was selfish, fearful. I mean, it went down the gamut. It was hard for me to say some of it, but I wanted to make sure we covered the whole gamut of any way we could possibly describe this sin. She, to her credit, she didn't stammer. 
She didn't stutter. She didn't lose it. She didn't go quiet. I didn't have to open my eyes to see if she's still with me. She was lockstep with me. Father, I, I, I confess this against you and you alone have I sinned and done this rebellious act of heinous sin. Forgive me, O oh God. Forgive me. Wash me. Cleanse me. Restore me. She repeated all this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And when we opened our eyes, my office was 10 times brighter. And it was so wild. It was like we were in the dark before and someone clicked on the lights while we prayed. But they were always on and the windows were always open and the hallway had light coming in. It was always bright, but it was so much brighter. And my heart said in that moment, this is why we confess sin. Even though her sin was 10 or 15 years old, it still had to be confessed. It had to be acknowledged. That's the doctrine of confession. God didn't care. It was done. I know, don't misunderstand me. God did care. But 15 years later, he doesn't care. He's forgiven her, but she has to be cleansed. She has to be washed. And if you don't ever confess, you can't clear the air. And so that was a big step forward in her life. There was still trauma to deal with, obviously, with such a, a horrific violation of life and innocence. But my point is that we can't get to a place where we stop confessing our sin. Even when you think in your relationship, well, they understand it was crabby. I was, they understand it was a bad day. We still need to come back and say, honey, forgive me for being short with you. You should confess your sins to your children. It's not all of them. They don't need to know your sins. Please. Your little girl, some of you men, your girls and your son don't need what you're still dealing with. They don't need to know about it. They don't even need to know what that thing is yet. So I'm not talking about that. But if you're rude to them, repent to them. If you're dishonest with them, if you break your word with them. Last night, Lydia wanted to play soccer. I said, after the game, we'll go kick the ball around. I didn't realize it was going to take forever to beat Alabama. <laughs> I'm glad we did, or they did. I'm not a UT guy. But then by the time it's ready to play soccer, it's dark outside. And so I had to apologize. Sweetie, I know I gave you my word, but it's too dark. Mama says it's bath time. It's late. You guys smell like billy goats. Go get in the bath. She said, but daddy, you said, I know, and I apologize. How about we get up at seven in the morning, and go play soccer. So we were up at seven this morning, kicking the ball in the backyard to keep my word because I broke it yesterday. I owe my daughter an apology and I confessed my sin when I broke my word. It's not hard unless you're stubborn. It's not hard unless you're prideful. It's not hard unless you're arrogant. It's not hard unless you are perfect. But when you're real and you practice it, it's really easy to say, please forgive me. You know, I did that. Please forgive me. I, I'm not perfect. I try to be, but we know that's not going to work out every time. So just have mercy on me. That's the doctrine of confession. Here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, we, that was a review. This con doctrine of confessing sin, even in the New Testament, under, even under the new covenant, blood bought, blood washed, we must still confess our sin to our God and whoever we sin against. James tells us the same thing in chapter 5. Confess your faults or your sins one to another that you may be healed. Sometimes healing is lacking in our life, and I'm talking physical healing. Sickness healing is lacking because you don't confess sin. You can't hold a grudge against somebody and expect a healthy life. You can't harbor unforgiveness and expect health. So James tells us one of the keys to healing, we're not against medicine, but have we confessed our sin? Are we still holding a grudge? So all that review, moving forward now in our doctrine of confession. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Here, the exhortation is to hold fast the profession or confession. I don't make a distinction between the two. The Greek word is the same. Let us hold fast the profession or confession of our faith. We have to hold fast 
that confession. Confessing sin is still a confession of faith. It's still saying, Lord, I believe lying is wrong. And because I believe that, I repent to my wife. Lord, I believe guile and deception is wrong. And because I believe that, I'm going to repent of it. Lord, I believe porn is wrong. Therefore, when I struggle with it, I'm going to confess it. Holding fast the confession of your faith means you repent when you violate the law of God. Because that's your faith. If we ever stop confessing our faith, we'll allow it to begin to slip. You're always confessing something, and everybody wants part of your confession. They want you to cheer for their team. They want you to cheer for their political party. They want you to cheer for their ideology. They want you to cheer for their major. They want you to cheer for their company. Everything works on propaganda. Anytime you start off in the corporate world, and a lot of you are educated, so that, that's where you'll end up, it'll always be your company versus their company. And companies, Fortune 500 companies especially, spend a lot of money on team-building exercises because they want your confession to be pro Name the company. And every company has a culture. Every company has a reputation. And they want you to think their company is the best. And that's okay. But my point is that there's always a theft of confession. And you and I, we're living in these last days where the world wants to leech our faith out of us and get us to change our confession, especially the devil. Because if we change our faith, we're no longer Christians. And this is not to debate once saved, always saved. But I've often made the argument, how many core doctrines can you begin to deny and stay a Christian? Like how many body parts can we cut off you before you can't operate anymore? We know we can cut your arms and legs off of you and you'll be okay. How many organs can we begin to take away? We can take both your eyes. We can take both your ears and the, the, the eardrums. We can take your tongue. We can take your jaw. We can take a kidney. We can take almost all your liver. Just leave a little bit, run you on dialysis and whatever. We can take scores and scores and scores of feet of intestine. We can take a whole lung and half of the next one. But at some point, we take the last bit and your body shuts down. What if faith is the same way? What if the core tenets of the faith are the same way? And you can denounce this and well, and I can denounce that and you can denounce this. And, but, but the thing is, you start cutting, where will you stop? So we start denouncing the tenets of faith now. We don't hold fast the confession of faith. We, we're kind of pulling a thread and where will we stop? Well, I don't believe in Noah's Ark. That seems a little far-fetched. Plus geologists. Don't talk to me. I am a geologist. And I don't believe that Jonah and the whale, you know, how do you live? He didn't live. The Bible says he died. He went to hell. That's what Jonah says. Did you ever read his account? I went to hell, he says. And my prayers went to the temple. And God raised me up. So he didn't live. He died. Well, I just know about those three Hebrew boys. They weren't boys. They were men. They were still a fiery furnace. See, where do you stop? We either believe the whole book or we don't. Well, I just, I think that's been done away with. Says who? Your seminary? Where do you stop pulling the thread? So we hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. The Bible tells us, Jesus Christ said, he that endures to the end shall be saved. So what are we enduring? The, the attacks against our faith, the attacks against core doctrine, the arguments, the vain philosophies, the science falsely so-called, as Paul wrote. We, we have to endure these because whoever gets your ear will get your heart because faith comes by hearing. And that's why it's good for us to keep affirming and reaffirming the scripture. I believe lying is a sin. I believe fornication is a sin in all its forms. I believe adultery is a sin. I believe theft is a sin. I believe slander is a sin. Gossip is a sin. I, I, you got to reaffirm these things. It's good to read the scriptures and say this, I believe because the world wants to talk you out of your faith. And self-justification wants to make you feel right even though you sin. And it will say, well, it wasn't that big of a lie. Well, you know, all things in moderation. All right? Murder? Can we do things? Can we murder in moderation? I only killed three people. 
It was real quick, too. They didn't suffer. How about affairs? All things in moderation, even adultery. Just a little bit of adultery. I just adulterated a little bit. Just, just, I still went home. We have to affirm the validity of the scriptures and keep affirming it. That's why it says, hold fast the profession of your faith without wavering. Now look at also, um, I think it's 2 Timothy I want to go to here. Uh, 1 Timothy 6. Here's another verse about confession. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And then I'm going to read you something about Polycarp. Part of our job as a Christian is to not just live as a witness, but to actually witness with our own mouth. The word witness in the Greek is martyr. We take martyr to mean something different now because a martyr to us is someone who dies for the faith. But the, the Greek martyr just means someone who has evidence. So if you go to trial, you would martyr. You would give witness, give testimony. We should both let our light shine and also talk. And there's nothing wrong with confessing what you believe out loud and just saying, I don't believe that. This is what I believe. As a Christian, this is what I believe. As a Bible student, this is what the Bible teaches. This is what the God of the Bible teaches me, so I'm going to tell you. And there's nothing wrong with getting in a discussion with Hindus or Buddhists or atheists. And I don't have a problem with you if you want to. Say, what do you believe? Well, let me tell you what I believe now. I've had, I've had conversations with Satanists. I've, I've worked with a lot of Muslims in my career, uh, Buddhists, Hindus. I, I want to know what they believe, not because I'm going to convert, but then I'm going to say, okay, now let me tell you what I believe. Because my words, because they're God's words, have way more anointing, like all the anointing when their words have nothing, and it's going to do something different in their life. We, we can't be afraid of having discussions with people unless your faith is so weak that you're going to talk to a Hindu and convert tomorrow. I mean, you're not going to talk to a Hindu and go, oh, I don't want to eat this burger now. You're not going to do that. Your faith should be a lot more established. Praise the Lord. Give me a lobster and some shrimp too, because I'm under the new covenant. You Southerners, you better be thankful you're not under the old covenant because you wouldn't be able to eat catfish. Because they can't eat fish without scales. And catfish are nasty. I once had a catfish at Oak Ridge National Laboratory at the cafeteria there. We were doing some drilling on the Hyfer reactor, so we went to the National Labs cafeteria. And I'm pretty sure I got the catfish fillet, but I'm pretty sure that it was a giant tapeworm I pulled out of the fillet. My boss's name was Mark Caldwell. I said, I pulled it and the part of the fillet for our African friends of the fillet, we Southerners, the fillet. I parted the fillet and there was this nice little parasite in the meat. And I said, Mark, is catfish supposed to look like nunchucks? And he said, hmm, yeah, I'm not sure we're going to do that either. God maybe knew what he was talking about when he said, don't eat catfish. Eat it if you want to. I don't want to. 1 Timothy 6, verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. So this isn't for sissies. It doesn't say fight each other. It doesn't say fight your wife. It doesn't say fight your neighbor. Fight the good fight of faith because we have enemies of our faith. We have the forces of darkness. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle. Principalities, powers, might, and wick, uh, spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies. We have a fight. Your faith is under attack. We, we wrote a message, preached a message a couple years ago for college kids called Faith Rape how to go to college and come out still a Christian. Our faith is under assault because the world hates our light. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Whereunto thou art also called. Well, if I'm called and it's given to me, why would I have to fight for it? And has professed a good profession before many witnesses. 
Lay hold of the eternal life whereunto thou art called, and you have professed a good profession before many witnesses. There's probably nothing more egregious than someone who used to be a Christian and was bold and a Sunday school teacher and was teaching Royal Rangers or Missionettes or RAs or GAs or whatever denomination you're raised in and was maybe an altar boy or whatever. Did mission work, and then you come and find them 20 years later, and they're tattooed up, yeah. gauged up, yeah. sleeping around up, own a bar. You didn't hold fast the profession of your faith. You didn't fight the good fight. You didn't lay hold of eternal life. You were moved away from it, and now what's your confession? Well, I used to. Yeah. Well, used to isn't doing it. I used to be married. Well, you're not married anymore. I used to go to church. Well, you don't anymore. Well, I used to teach Sunday school. Well, you don't anymore. Well, I used to pray in the spirit. Well, you don't anymore. I used to be a soul winner. Well, you're not anymore because the Bible commands us to lay hold of it and fight that good fight of faith. We don't let go. People ought to come to us and say, I thought you were going to back off. And we say, nope, I'm getting worse every day. If they can get worse in their sin, I ought to be able to get worse in my faith. Like David said, I'll become yet more vile. When his wife, Michael, said, I thought you were better than this. You were so vile. And he said, and I will become yet more vile than this. And the Lord struck her. She never had kids the rest of her life. And when you start mocking God's people who are on fire, the Lord will strike you barren and you won't be able to produce anything. You lay hold of eternal life whereunto you're called. That's your calling, church. We're called to lay hold of it. And we fight the good fight of faith. And we confess this confession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things and before Pontius, who, uh, before Jesus Christ, who before Pontius witnessed a good confession or he even had a good confession that thou, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus. What is the commandment? Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold of eternal life, profess a good profession. That's the commandment we keep without spot and unrebukable. If our mouth goes silent in our confession, so does our light. We must make sure we're always talking about our faith. Get around Christians where you can talk about your faith freely and openly. If you're always running with pagans, especially you students who have to do lab work and whatnot, you're going to be around pagans. That's all right. But make sure you have a company you can retreat to like Peter, James, and John so that when you're with the, the PhD Pharisees or maybe the uh, laboratory Sadducees and they ream you out for your faith and mock you, you can go back to the BCM or go back to Chi Alpha, or go back to your church and say, can we just pray for a few minutes? Somebody read me a Bible verse. I got filth all over me. I got physics all over me. And God made physics, and these morons somehow made it pagan. I just need somebody to wash me. Let me hear the word of God. I can't even find my Bible right now. You got to have an own company where you can go back and confess your faith to. Sometimes you need to get in your car and just say, bless God. I want you to know, devil, Jesus is still Lord. He's still my Savior, still the Son of God. I'm still born again, still going to church tonight. Still going to read my Bible later. Still going to pay my tithe. And if that pagan lab mate brings up paganism again, I'm going to preach him so hard, he's going to ask for a different partner. Amen. Amen. I don't want us to be rude, but we don't have to be pushovers either. Sometimes as Southerners, we want to be polite. We're not called to always be polite. We don't have to be belligerent. But if you're lab mate or whoever's talking about sex constantly, you, you, can, you can ask them all sorts of questions like, are you comfortable sleeping around? Do you know what STDs are? Apparently you don't. What if your mom slept around as much as you do? How would that make you feel? Bring their birth person into it.
You know, if she slept with you, she slept with three other guys last week. You like, you like getting naked with dudes? Just bring the reality to it with them. Say, so let me tell you something, buddy. I'm a Christian. Jesus Christ teaches us to be holy and clean. And the Bible says, when I fornicate, I sin against my own body. Can you imagine a sin that God says, that's the only sin where you sin against your own body. You got to be able to bring the word up to hold fast your confession. And eventually they'll ask, they'll, they'll realize they don't need to ask you what you think because they don't want to know anymore. And they'll begin to exclude you. They will vomit you out of their own land. And that's a win for you. But if you just sit there and kind of passively agree, God's going to hold you in compliance with their sin. At least squeak and say, I don't agree. At least say, hey, guys, you know I'm a Christian. Don't talk that way around me. At least, at least speak up for your own faith. If I was a Muslim, would you talk this way? If I was a Muslim female with a hijab and a burqa, would you talk this way or would you have more respect? So you know how to show respect, you just don't. Just be a little bit more vocal than a little Christian pushover. Amen. Hold fast the confession of your faith to the end. Now I'm going to read you this passage out of the epistle of Polycarp. This is not scripture. It's not canon. This is a book about the seven messages to the seven churches by a tremendous pastor named Rick Renner. This is a tremendous book. And he was quite the knowledgeable theologian. So Polycarp was born about 75, no, no, 65 AD. He is famous for being one of John the Revelator's disciples. When he was martyred, he was the bishop of the church of Smyrna, not Georgia, Smyrna, Turkey, Smyrna, uh, Asia Minor. And there is speculation that he was the bishop of the church of Smyrna when the epistle of Revelation chapter 2 was written. To the angel of the church of Smyrna, these things I write, you dwell uh, in the seat of Satan where all the martyrdom takes place. And he goes on to say specifically in Revelation 2, to the angel, the pastor of the church of Smyrna, endure to the end and you'll receive the crown of life. So some of the theological conjecture is that that was him as a young pastor, pastoring Smyrna, and it was a prophecy saying, you endure to the end. You're living in the church where everybody gets martyred, and you'll receive a crown of life. So I like that conjecture. He would be a young pastor. And so here he is in this letter, this epistle of the Smyrnians, also called the, the, the epistle Polycarp. And it talks about the night. He was in his 90s. He died 155 A.D., so into the second century. So he was a very old man. And he had a vision one night in prayer where he saw his pillow catch on fire. He knew instantly. He said, it must needs be that I be burned alive. And within a few hours, he was arrested and taken down to the Colosseum in, in Smyrna. And so they march him in. They, they break it up like we do Polycarp 9-1. It's like Galatians 4-5. Uh, but as Polycarp entered into the stadium, a voice came to him from heaven saying, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. And this is a translation. You find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Uh, be a man. Quit yourselves. Gird yourselves up like men. And no one saw the speaker, but those of our people who were with him heard the voice. And at length, when he was brought up, there was a great tumult, for they heard that Polycarp had been apprehended. They wanted Polycarp because he kept destroying their temples and their idols and converting so many folks. They really didn't like this old pastor. He was a thorn in their side. So the whole of the Colosseum's excited. They finally arrested this guy. When 
Then he was brought before him. The proconsul inquired whether he were the man. And on his confessing that he was, he tried to persuade him to a denial, saying, Have respect to your age, Polycarp, and other things in accordance therewith, as it is their wont to say. Swear by the genius of Caesar. Repent and say, Away with the atheists. Then Polycarp, with solemn countenance, looked upon the whole multitude of lawless heathen that were with that were in the stadium and waved his hand to them and groaning, looking up to heaven, he said, away with the atheists, which was not how they wanted him to say it. (laughs) But when the magistrate pressed him hard and said, swear the oath and I will release thee, revile thy Christ. Polycarp said, four score and six years have I been Christ's servant and he hath done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? But on his persisting again and saying, swear by the genius of Caesar, he answered, if thou supposest Verily, that I will swear by the genius of Caesar, as thou sayest, and feignest that thou art ignorant who I am. Hear thou plainly, I am a Christian. But if thou wouldest learn the doctrine of Christianity, assign a day, and I will teach you. (laughs) The proconsul said, Prevail upon the people. But Polycarp said, As for thyself, I should have held thee worthy of discourse. For we have been taught to render, as it is meet, to princes and authorities appointed by God such honor as does us no harm. But as for these, I do not hold them worthy that I should defend myself before them. Whereupon the proconsul said, I have wild beasts here, and I will throw them to the, throw you to them, except you repent. But he said, call for them. For the repentance from better things to worse is a change not permitted to us as believers. The repentance from better things to worse is not a change permitted for us. But it is a noble thing to change from the wickedness toward righteousness. Then he said unto him again, I will cause thee to be consumed by fire if you despisest the wild beast unless you repent. But Polycarp said, you threaten me with fire which burns for a season and after a little while is quenched. For you are ignorant of the fire of the future judgment and eternal punishment which is reserved for the ungodly. But why delayest? Start your fire. And then it says they go to do it. They begin to nail him. He says, you don't have to nail me to this post. My Christ will sustain me. I'll stay here. And I won't read it because it goes on for several more pages. But the confession of this old man is such boldness. And you're guaranteed you'll see him in heaven. But how many will renounce their faith? Not even over the fires, but over social media pressure. So we got to make sure we hold fast the confession of our faith. Now come with me to Deuteronomy, because this is where I want to kick some things off here. Hold fast the profession of your faith. The, The world wants to rape you of your confession. The world wants to strip it from you. And I know that's a harsh term. I know it's a a, a very egregious, violent offense, but that's what the world wants to do to our faith. Many of our professors see it as their mission. They'll even speak of it publicly. I've even heard some of you tell me that your professors in times past would say, how many of you are Christians in my class? Four, five, six. Raise the hand. Professors say, you won't be when I'm done with you. Hold fast the profession of your faith. Maybe get a copy of Polycarp's epistle and denounce or proclaim that to your professor. I once had a Muslim boss who uh, mocked Jesus one time. We went back and forth for several years. He we, we debated Islam versus Christianity, and he said, your God is nothing. And I said, Bobber, you hear me clearly. Before this is said and done, before you go to hell, your knees will bow before the name of my Lord Jesus Christ, because that's what he promised. So don't trifle with me and don't mess with my God. And it shut him up for a couple weeks. <laughs> and if he fired me, so what? He never did. 
it's fun to kind of flex those muscles every once in a while just to learn that you have them. Some of you have never flexed the muscle because you don't know you have it. I'm not talking about being rude, but speak up for your God. Your calling is to be salt and light. So turn the light on every once in a while. Just disagree out loud. I disagree. That's all you got to say. I don't believe that. You don't have to be rude. Just say, if we're going to have a discourse, can I bring something to the course? Amen. Deuteronomy 26. Let's look at a, a, a Levitical Deuteronomical law. That's a hard one to say. Let's look at something Moses taught. <laughs> and this was instrumental for the Jews to keep their faith. And we've taught this a little bit with our offering time in the past, but we'll look at it more in depth this morning. Because here's another line upon the, the, the mosaic doctrine of confession. And the whole purpose of confession is to maintain your faith and to remember where you've come from and where you're going. If you remember Paul being a Hebrew of the Hebrews and a Pharisee, he knew the law. So, so much of his doctrine is echoing the Old Testament. And the foundation is laid in the Torah, and then he's bringing it through the cross and giving us the application for the New Testament believer. So every place where he says, hold fast the confession of your faith, Hebrews also goes on to say that Jesus Christ is the high priest of our confession. He's taking that from the law. So we have permission to go back there. We're not afraid of the law. It doesn't scare us. But look at Deuteronomy chapter 26. Let's see another passage where confession is commanded. And it's going to be all about remembering your testimony. Because if you can remember and rehearse regularly what Jesus Christ has done for you, where you've come from, and more importantly, where you're going, you won't deny, denounce it. Like Polycarp, I've served God 86 years. Why would I be unfaithful now before a bunch of atheists and wild beasts? Why would I care now? Deuteronomy 26 verse 1 says, And it shall be, when thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance, and possesseth it, and dwellest therein. So there's three things there. You're coming in, you're possessing, and you're dwelling. That talks about the promotion and the faithfulness of God in your life. You started off as vagabonds, as slaves, then nomads. Deuteronomy is delivered right before Israel takes the promised land. It's their prep speech. It's like General Patton's famous speech to the armies. This is getting them ready. About 200 new laws, 215 new laws are delivered in the book of Deuteronomy to culminate with 613 total laws of the Old Testament. And he's saying, this is what's about to happen. And this is what you're going to do when you go there so that you don't backslide away from it. When you come into the land and you inherit it and you dwell in it, that thou shalt take of the first of all the fruit of the earth, which thou shalt bring of the land that the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shall put it in a basket, and you shall go into the place which the Lord thy God has called his name, or shall choose to place his name there. That is, we're talking about an offering. And let me pause there and throw this out there in our culture. They had to work the land to have an offering. If they didn't work, neither did they eat. That expression from Thessalonians comes back to the Mosaic law. If you don't work, you don't eat. If you don't plow your field, you don't eat. And you go hungry and you die. So prosperity was dependent upon their work ethic. That's why we believe in the meritocracy. We reject the socialist ideology that we're all equal and should all have equal amounts. That's the fallacy and it's heresy. He said, let's read it again. 
Thou shalt take of the first fruit of the earth, which thou shalt bring of thy land that the Lord thy God giveth thee. God gives you the land, but you got to make it work. God gives all of you gifts and abilities, talents, education, IQ. We're all someplace different. It's enough to feed your family and have something for God. Otherwise, he'd be unjust. All right. Put it in a basket. Take it to the place where the Lord shall choose to place his name there. That's the local church in our vernacular. And thou shalt go unto the priest that shall be in those days and shall say unto him, I confess this day unto the Lord thy God. We see that with every offering is this doctrine of confession. Let us be mindful not to, when we do tithes and offerings, to do it quietly. I am currently studying a uh, 150-year-old theological work by a famous rabbi talking about the mitzvah and the law. And I'm working, the book came in the mail and true to Jewish form, it's published backwards. So you have to start this way and you read it like this. And my kids found it. They said, is this backwards? I said, yes. Is this upside down? No, because they're looking at the Hebrew. I don't read Hebrew at all, but the other page is in English. But something fascinating that this old rabbi said about the law, the mitzvah, what, some of what we're reading right here. He said, if you do it, without intending to do it, it doesn't count it to you as being done. He was teaching in this 150-year-old writing that I have translated, your heart has to be right when you do it. And he said, otherwise, the promise of enjoying the Shekinah on your life is absent. The Shekinah is the glory of God. That's what they call the glory of God. So even this old rabbi said, if you don't do the word of God with the right heart, the presence of God leaves you. I think, boy, the Jews, so close to the kingdom, they just miss the Savior. But you see the foundational doctrine still in the 19th century. So coming back to this, there's a confession to be made even over the offering. We don't just, I grew up Baptist. We would just throw the money in the plate, the big heavy brass ones as they went by. You know, you just bling, make it ring. Mama did, shh, don't do that. And they got you a little envelope so you couldn't make it ring. So it passed through and... And sometimes you were tempted as a kid to steal a dollar. And now I look back and think, who was the tightwad that only put a dollar in that plate for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering? Why would you only put a dollar in there? Why could a kid like me take it? I never did, but I thought about it. <laughs> the Bible teaches there's a confession to be made when you bring the offering. This confession's made to the priest. Now that should remind us of what Hebrew says, Jesus Christ, the high priest of our Confession. That is a picture that brings us back to this passage and the one about confessing your sin to the priest so he can atone for you. Either way, Jesus is who we confess things to. We, we can confess our faith to one another, obviously. We, we confess our faith uh, to, to the world and encourage ourselves, but primarily we confess our sin to God unless we sin against somebody. And we don't have to confess our offering to me. I don't want to know what you're giving or what you need unless you want me to know, but I don't ask every person. That would take forever. We could do the offering. All right, what's your confession? Uh-huh. 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 Yeah. All right. Wrap it up because we like, we got 30 more minutes here. Come on. We don't do that. You talk to God. That's who you confess, but there's still a confession to be made. Otherwise, what's the difference between that and Starbucks? What's the difference between that and click to pay? What's the difference between that and a PayPal? You don't make a confession of faith when you swipe right to order your thing from PayPal or, or Amazon. This is something that we make, that we do to make our offering different. So let's keep reading. I confess or profess this day unto the Lord thy God 
that I am coming to the country which the Lord swear unto our fathers for to give us. He begins his offering by reminding God and himself of where God has brought him from. This is part of our confession of faith. We all have a story. We all have a testimony. Now, it does get into ditches and habits sometimes where we want to major too heavily on the wickedness. And, well, I was a male hooker. And, and I was in Vegas. And, and let me tell you, I did every drug under the sun. And I was dealing and I had everything. And sometimes we spend 45 minutes of our testimony there and God gets five minutes. And it should be the other way. Let me just tell you, I've done it all. Every bit. If you're thinking it, I did it at least twice. And probably some stuff you haven't thought of. That's, but let's just leave it there. Let's move on. That's what this is saying. God has brought me to the country he promised. God, so the first part of the confession is God is faithful. That's got to be our confession. God is faithful, and I can testify to his faithfulness. For me personally, I got saved as a seven-year-old little boy at a Baptist youth camp. And I can tell you every step of the way, looking back now, how his hand was upon my life. He says, the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and shall set it down before the altar of the Lord thy God. And thou shalt speak and say before the Lord thy God. So there's a brief confession made to the priest. The, altar rece- uh, the, off- uh, the priest receives your offering, sets it by the altar. And now apparently they were to step aside and continue their confession to God Almighty. So that's what it says there. Thou shalt speak, here's that confession again, and say before the Lord thy God, your faith and my faith is a spoken faith. Yes. We can't do this hogwash. Well, you know, it's just private. You just want to keep it quiet. No, we have to confess it. We have to declare it. Jesus said, what I give you in private, shout it from the rooftops. Amen. And we, we, we're even too scared to tweet it. I would challenge some of you that are still on social media, because I know a lot of you have been delivered from it. Post scripture till they kick you off. Post scripture and sermon points to all your friends unfriend you. And then Twitter puts you in timeout, you know, and then Facebook jail and then whatever. Do it. See what you can do. See, see if you can activate those algorithms and those pagans to kick you out. And there might be some kind of like little sticker for you in heaven. Because <laughs> that's about as much you, as you suffered being put in Facebook jail for preaching the gospel. I mean, you'll get a little gold sticker on your little robe or whatever. And like, yeah, you, you got kicked off in 22. Uh, Here are people whose children were raped and burned in front of them. And then you'll say, "Uh, can I, can we believe in reincarnation just for me so I can go back and retry this thing all over again? You get one shot at this thing. Speak and say to the Lord thy God, verse five, a Syrian ready to perish was my father. He's talking about his lineage of Joseph. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few and became there a a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians evil entreated us and afflicted us and laid upon us hard bondage. And when we cried unto the Lord God of our fathers, and that's where deliverance comes, not through protests, not through hashtag movements, because all that's man power. When we, a nation of slaves, as a nation in unity, called unto the God of our fathers, the Lord heard our voice, not the politicians. Politicians are corrupt. You can't trust them. Their arms are short anyway. They can't do anything for you. 
The Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. And the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with great terribleness and with signs and with wonders. I want you to see he's rehearsing his faith. They're only 40 years removed past that testimony. This is the end of the Exodus, 40 years from Egypt into Jericho. They're really about 39 years removed from it. So this is, some of these people lived it. We have to keep telling our testimony so people don't forget. You need to rehearse and confess your faith to your children so they know all the miracles you have seen God do in your own life. So your children will know it. How else could Gideon say, where are the miracles we heard our fathers talk about? Except that they had them to talk about them. Do, does, do your kids know your family story? Some of it they may need to wait till they're a little bit older to appreciate. Mama did some jail time. Daddy was a bad dude. Some of it they don't need to know till they're maybe 17 or 27. But do they know a lot of the stuff? I'd encourage you to keep a testimony book in your family, a book of miracles, a book of answered prayer that you can rehearse with your kids and say, look, we prayed one time. We, we tell our kids, we had to believe God for every one of you. We, we almost lost you. We almost lost mama. God has been faithful so that our kids know that God is working in our lives and that he works in their lives. When our kids have been healed, because some of our kids have been supernaturally healed a time or two, we tell them, we prayed when you were nine weeks old and God healed you supernaturally. Really? Yeah. Because I want my kids to have that same fervent faith. I don't want them to have a theological faith. I want them to have a faith in the living God that hears our cries and moves on our behalf when we cry out to him. Let me say this. You'll always turn to who's most real to you. So if you're looking for a hashtag movement, Twitter's more real to you. If you're looking to the politicians, politics is more real to you. If you're looking for a march, social activism is the power in your life. But when your first response is fall to your knees and say, oh God in heaven, then you just realize, re revealed who your God really is. And he ought to be the first person we call to and the last person we call to. And by person, I mean God Almighty. He delivered us, into verse 8, with signs and with wonders, and he hath brought us into this place and hath given us the land, even a land that flows with milk and honey. Yes, it was bad. Yes, great-grandpa was mistreated. Yes, we were slaves, but God has delivered. And that's how you always end your confession and your testimonies, not with nobody knows the trouble I've seen, nobody knows but Jesus. You end the confession with, but God has delivered, but God has helped. But look at all this land flowing with milk and honey. And now, now pause. They're being taught this. Are they in the land with milk and honey yet? No, they're being taught this before it happens because it's a guarantee that it's going to happen. If they won't receive it, though, they get to die on the other side of Jordan, nomads, one generation removed from slavery. You have to believe the promises of God and confess them, as Hebrews says, and declare them before you can receive them. It's a, it's a, a wicked doctrine to say, well, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. No, nope, we believe before we see. And because we believe, we do see. If you believe it after you see it, you walk by sight, and that's not permitted in the Bible. We walk by faith. God has brought us to this place, but they haven't seen it yet when this is written, has given us this land, even a land that flows with milk and honey. And now, behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land, which thou, O Lord, has given me. Now, see, that's the funny thing. But, Lord, you and I both know I worked it. You know I planted it. I cultivated it. I watered it, kept the birds away, kept the foxes away. Lord, you know I did all the work. But the humble 
realist says, if God hadn't permitted it, it wouldn't be mine anyway. A lot of folks say, well, I work so hard for this money. God doesn't get any of it. He works so, I work so hard. It's not his anyway. Well, let the Lord touch your mind. Like one minister said, very successful minister, very talented musician, prolific author, widely respected guest minister. He said he was sitting down playing his piano one morning and said, Lord, I just wondering how much of all this that's going on in my life is me and how much of what I can do is you. And he said, I couldn't figure out how to play the piano in that moment. And I couldn't figure out what I was doing and where I was going and and what I was even supposed to do that day. And he said, by lunch, I said, okay, God, I get it. Please put it back, put it back. I realize that without you, I can't think, I can't play the piano, I can't write books, I can't even answer the phone call. I can't even remember what I'm doing from one room to the next. Yes. Yeah. So if we want to say for a moment, well, I, I'm, I've made myself, this is mama's intellect I inherited. I get my smarts from my dad. You know, all this wealth is because I worked hard for it. Yeah, the Lord will touch your mind. And you'll be like your great-great-grandpa wondering where his applesauce is. I'm cold. Where's my slippers? <laughs> yeah, we have to acknowledge God in everything. This is the confession they make. We're talking about the doctrine of confession. When's the last time we stopped to give thanks for our whole testimony? I'm not saying we should do it every day, but it is good to sit there maybe in your bed in the morning and realize 15 years ago I was in jail. Or 18 years ago, I was single, crying out to God. I didn't feel like I was ever going to get married. Or, or for some of you mamas who are really irritated at your kid getting up nine times in the night. Two years ago, we were crying out to God to give us that baby. Yes, amen. How quickly we forget the blessing of God because we're frustrated in a moment living in middle-class America. It's good to rehearse, Lord, we believed you for Lydia, we believed you for Abigail, we believed you for our boy Justice, and you've been faithful. We believed you for the wisdom, the finances. You, Lord, you've blessed us. Lord, you, I believed you for a wife. You brought me my wife. Lord, I believed you for direction. You got me out of the Philippines. You've got to rehearse these things and talk about them out loud. Otherwise, you really get lost in the moment, wondering why you don't have what the Joneses have. Verse 11, and thou shalt... Oh, verse 10. And now behold, I have brought the first fruits of the Lord, which thou, O Lord, has given me, and thou shalt set it before the Lord thy God and worship before the Lord thy God. So this is why we make a big deal of our offering. I'm not against passing buckets or plates, but we like to put the baskets down front because the Bible says to come and present it to the altar and then worship the Lord there. Tithes and offerings is worship. It helps us remember we don't worship money. We need money. We don't worship money. We can also be thankful we don't have to bring bulls and goats. Because what would we do if we had to make the parking lot look like a stockyard? Because you brought some more chickens. Because the Lord's blessed me with a bunch of chickens. And, and I'd say, please, no more. Nobody, get out of the bison business. I don't want your bison tithe because that's a big mess. Please, let's go to something smaller. Let's go to butterflies. Let's start butterfly farms. <laughs> Because they make silk and they poop less. Let's do something smaller that we can offer to the Lord. Thank God we can swipe PayPal or just throw an envelope in the bucket now. Either way, we come and worship the Lord. It's a time of worship, verse 11 says, and it's a time of rejoicing. That's where Paul said that God loves a, a cheerful giver. Rejoice. You rejoice at this offering. Even if you had nothing to give, just to stand in front of the altar of God and say, 
I was on my way to hell and somebody witnessed to me going door to door evangelizing. And now I've been in church 29 years. God, you are so good to me. Where would I be today if you hadn't brought me out of the land of Egypt and all the affliction, the drugs and the depression and the pills. And now, Lord, I have a beautiful family and a career and my kids going off to college. And oh, Lord, what else do you want out of my life? I can't give you enough. See, this is the power of confession. This is why religion tells us church should be quiet. We shouldn't have any expression, that we shouldn't share our faith. That's a personal matter. This is a major component of Deuteronomy. Before they enter the promised land, God says, this is the secret to prospering. Remember where you come from and talk about it. Remember where you've been brought to and talk about it and be excited about where God has brought you. If you're not excited about where God's brought you from, he ain't brought you anywhere yet. If you're still a stick in the mud, you don't realize how hell was that you were headed to. You shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord thy God hath given thee, and unto your house, you and the Levite and the stranger that is among you. Now come with me to 1 Kings. Let's look at one more passage here, and then we'll probably be out of time here in a few minutes. This is the doctrine of confession. There's many facets to it. We've talked about the confession of sin, which we ought to practice every day because we sin every day. We shouldn't just expect our spouse or our children to forgive us. We should teach them that we're sorry and teach them how to say, I forgive you. When when you do that with your children, you teach them how to also drop the charges themselves and to not hold on to grudges. Children will learn to hold grudges from their parents. We can't teach our kids to hold grudges. First Kings chapter eight, while you're turning there, go somewhere into the thirties. We're going to find the thirties. The other thing we said there is that we've got to hold fast the confession of our faith. What do you believe? Be vocal about it. You should be like Noah as you're building God's kingdom, his ark. You should condemn people around you. That's what Hebrews 11 says. By faith, Noah was moved with faith, uh, fear, built an ark, condemned the world. Our aim is not to condemn the world. Our aim is to preach the gospel. When the gospel is preached, whosoever will will be saved. Whosoever won't will be condemned already. Your presence should convict people. You don't have to beat it down their throat, but they should know where you stand on things. If you have to remind them, hey, I'm a Christian, a real one, not one of those seeker-friendly Sunday morning-only types. I don't sleep around or drink beer or go to the tattoo parlor. I'm a real Christian. So I want you to respect that because I respect you. You don't want me preaching my gospel down your throat. I don't want you preaching your porn down mine. So how about we have a mutual ceasefire? You shut up and I'll shut up. Maybe have a mutual understanding. Amen. Even the pagans sometimes have more respect for Christians than they do themselves. I've told the guys the other night we were doing our discipleship. When I was on this geology drilled shaft job in Indianapolis, it's a union job. So I was on that job site every day for a couple weeks. So I got to know all the union guys. And they knew I was the preacher boy because I was in Bible school. And uh, so you cut up with them because if you know them, they'll do better for you than when you need them to do something. Union people are not known for their work ethic. And I am, and I wasn't union, so I needed them to get stuff done. So when you befriend them, you can say, hey, I need this done because apparently it's against the law for me to pick up a socket. And they got to call the union hall to get a socket driver to come drive a socket. Like, look, I'm not union. I don't work for you guys. I'm inspecting your work. Give me the stinking socket. I'll put the tooth on the rig so we can keep drilling. No, you can't do that. Anyway, so got to know these guys. And one day the drill rig was down. So we're all just kind of sitting around this giant drilled shaft. It's probably five or six foot in diameter. 
casing goes down into the rock, into the riverbed, so we're on this river, deep hole. And they got to telling crass jokes. So I, I'm like, eh, eh. And they were off color. And then one of them dropped a blasphemous joke. Horrifically blasphemous. Just horrific. And I went, hmm, that's bad. And <laughs> this one dude who threw the joke out there, he thought it was funny. He's laughing. And the other union guys looked at him. And the big boss man said, blankety blank. That's preacher boy right there. Why would you tell that joke in front of preacher boy? You blankety blank. You ever say something like that again, I will kill you myself. I will stuff you down this hole. We'll grind you into oblivion. They'll never find you. You understand me? And I thought, well, I didn't have to say nothing. <laughs> Go unions. I'm, I'm pro-union now. <laughs> yeah. There were no more jokes told while I was on that job site. I didn't have to say anything about it. First Kings 18. Verse 33 talks about a judgment that comes upon Israel for sin. Here's our final little point of confession this morning. When thy people Israel be smitten down before the enemy, that means you're not winning in life. Israel only failed when they were full of sin. Because they've sinned against thee. There you go. There's the interpretation. Why are they failing? They're in sin. And shall turn again to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication unto thee in this house then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of thy people Israel and bring them again into the land which thou gavest unto their fathers. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against thee, if they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when thou afflictest them, then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of thy servants and of thy people Israel that thou teach, uh, that thou teach them the good way wherein they should walk and give rain upon thy land, which thou hast given to the people for an inheritance. In both verses, 33 and 35, the people are in sin, and calamity is breaking out against them. Either the enemies are destroying them, or they're going to starve to death because of agricultural failure. The solution is, confess the name of Jesus. Call upon the name of God. Humble yourself and pray. If your life is drying up, if things are working against you, here's a solution. Stop and confess the name of Jesus. Stop what you're doing and say, Jesus, I haven't called upon your name. Forgive me. Lord, I'm backslidden. Forgive me. Lord, I'm hurting. Forgive me. Lord, I've turned my back against you. I've put other gods in my life other than you. Sometimes the God is a career. Sometimes it's a uh, a worry. We, we make other gods. They're not just always Buddha statues or Vishnu statues. They're often uh, other totems. The key is to stop what you're doing and confess the name of God. Confess the name of Jesus. And he promises, I'll hear and deliver, those, deliver you from your enemy. I'll hear, I'll send you rain. I'll hear and give you grace. I'll hear and help you. And Paul summarized it this way. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The word saved there doesn't mean eternal salvation alone. It's sozo. Saved, healed, made whole, delivered, prospered. It's, a, it's an all-inclusive deliverance. Here, they don't just sometimes need deliverance from enemies. Sometimes they just need rain. So the salvation is whatever is facing you. It's a deliverance from the opposition that you and I bring upon ourselves by drying up our confession and turning away from our God. This is why we have to focus on the doctrine of confession. Our mouths are powerful. Proverbs tells us life and death are here. 
Jesus Christ said, you can have what you say. Jesus Christ said, we'll give an account for every idle word spoken. So we have to be mindful of what we say. May the first thing we confess is sin when we do it. May the next thing we are really good at confessing is our testimony that we might let others and our families know what God has done for us. And then here's a good opportunity. If things are going against us, let's stop and figure out where we've stopped confessing the name of Jesus. This confession doctrine is critical, critical, critical. If you don't call upon the name of the Lord, you cannot be saved. With kids, you know, we, all of our kids are under 10. They're, they like to go to the backyard and play with the neighbor boys on the trampoline. We always open the windows and everything's fine until we hear the name of mommy. Mommy or daddy. And that's when we know they need our help. If they don't ever call upon us, we just leave them be. How many of us often think we can do everything without calling upon the name of our Father? It's really easy to do in this nation with all prosperity, all technology, all health, all infrastructure, all government aid. But you want your kids to grow up, but you don't want them calling on you at 16 every five minutes. That's weird. But the point is they only call when they need help. And you and I, we need help constantly. So let's make sure, like verse 33 says, confess your name. May we confess the name of Jesus, pray and make supplication in the house of God, and he will hear from heaven and take care of us. Amen? That's the doctrine of confession. We got a lot more lessons, several more lessons on this when we start talking about confession, blessing, supplication, imprecation. There's a lot to this doctrine. We haven't even touched on the numbers, the book of numbers, the doctrine of vows, which we still do in this country, and even in the New Testament church, we still make vows. All it means is a promise. Except our words are so cheap, we make God promises all the time and we don't keep them. So we got to learn what that means again. There's a whole chapter in the book of Numbers devoted to the doctrine of making a vow. The psalmist said, my vows to the Lord I will repay in the presence of all his people. Father, we thank you for the word this morning. May we keep our vows. We'll study that next week, Lord, if you'll permit. Father, we need your hand upon our life. We need your wisdom. We need to be able to confess our testimony. You've given all of us a great testimony. We need your hand to remind us. We need the Holy Spirit to remind us to be vocal, to be vocal about the word of the Lord and the testimony of God in our life. Father, may we hold fast this confession over our tithes and offerings. May we rehearse our testimony. Father, may we be quick to confess our sin when we've committed it against one another. And Lord, we need your, your hand. May our confession Bring us into great glory for your testimony. May our confession build faith in others. May our confession keep us safe. And may we hold fast the confession of our faith, steadfast unto the end, because faithful is he that promised. We remember you, Lord Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You are the high priest of our confession. May we constantly speak and confess the word of God, and may we see that we can have the word of God. Your word teaches us to pray the kingdom come, the will be done on earth like it is in heaven. And so we pray it, we declare it, we proclaim it in the name of Jesus. Thank you for helping us, and may we remember what we've heard today as we go about our week.